Dear Father, we pray that this book would be to us what you intended, which was as a revelation of Jesus Christ, clarification about you. Please make the book clear to us and reveal yourself to us more clearly. Amen. Well, I thought it would be interesting here what your expectations are on a book of Revelation. And uh, maybe I figured out the date of the second coming and we'll go through and uh, something like that. Or um, some interesting uh, tidbits about the current pope or maybe about the next pope. Or with some fancy numerology, maybe we figured out uh, the next big earthquake or something like that. Um, aren't those often kind of the expectations of Revelation? We want to go through and identify kings and presidents and, and those kinds of things and dates and so on. And I thought, you know, what do you think if Jesus were here, let's just say in human form, and he was going to go through, he has one hour to go through the book of Revelation. Uh, do you think he'd just say, well, let's just cut to the chase, let's go to the board here, timeline, 538 A.D., 1798 A.D., 1844, and uh, is that the main point of the book of Revelation? Well, let's, let's just see how it opens. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the, the word here in Greek um, is revel, means revelation, means clarification, understanding. And uh, so this book, which is often thought to be a great mystification and a book of... Uh, confusing horns and heads and so on is actually meant to be something that is to clear up our picture of God. Now there is a lot of fascinating stuff about the future and timelines and all of that, but we need to keep the main focus here. And as we read on, Christ made these things known to his servant John by sending his angel to him, and John has told us all that he has seen. This is his report concerning the message from God and the truth revealed by Jesus. And this comes up five times in Revelation, the truth revealed by Jesus. And remember, what did Jesus himself declare about his mission? I've come to make the Father known. And so the truth that Jesus revealed is ultimately the truth about what God is like in character. And so when we read Revelation, that needs to be at the heart of what we're looking for. We're trying to understand better into the heart and mind of God. That's what Jesus came to reveal. For example, a subject we've talked about a number of times, and I won't go through in detail now, but God's wrath comes up in Revelation. Now, if we take here as a foundation pillar, we start from this point. This is what we believe as Christians. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we state, okay, that's number one. Jesus is the greatest revelation of who God is that we will ever have. All right, now, let's come back and look at God's wrath. And we we have to take the whole Bible, and we come to a difficult passage like this in Deuteronomy. My anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach to the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. God's own words. Okay, very much this language is used in the book of Revelation as well. Okay, what we want to do and what you know, we've tried to do all the way through is we use the whole Bible to explain things like that. And that, this is what, exactly what we have to do in the book of Revelation. And so we've talked about this subject of God's wrath, and God never leaves us completely in the dark here, even in Deuteronomy. Just read on in, around this passage. They fail to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and ten thousand by only two? Here's the explanation. The Lord their God had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. 
and dozens of examples all the way through the Old Testament and to Romans 1, where we have the clearest description of what God's wrath is. It is his abandoning his children to suffer the consequences. Okay, and it's not an arbitrary thing. It's God either has the choice to manipulate, control those people. He doesn't do that. And he gives them the freedom to leave his side and suffer consequences. That is God's wrath. Another, just same passage here in Deuteronomy. When that happens, I will become angry with them. What does God do in his anger? I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. That is the definition of God's wrath all the way through the Bible. And again, Romans 1, three times. What is God's wrath? He gives them up, gives them up, gives them up. So we have to have all 65 books of the Bible in mind now as we come to the book of Revelation and we read about in Revelation 16, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's anger on the earth. And this does not just stand alone, independent of the whole rest of the Bible. We use the rest of the Bible to understand this. What happens when the plagues are sent out upon the earth? How is God involved in this? And I know a number of you here are Seventh-day Adventists, so I thought just in case you don't believe me, here's at least a, the most well-known Seventh-day Adventist who said this about the plagues. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course independent of the Spirit of God after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them it is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be. For Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short. And if he is not restrained, we shall see more terrible manifestations of his power than we've ever dreamed of. This is, for my way of thinking, fits very well with the definition of God's wrath all the way through. Um, so God removes his protection and then these horrible things happen. But again, we have to use the whole Bible to come to that opinion when we look at the book of Revelation. And it comes up here, why does God talk this way? If the meaning of his wrath is that he gives them up to suffer consequences, why doesn't he just say it clearly? And I, this is the best verse, I think, for explaining this. The people of Israel are stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? I know I've read this several times. But God loves stubborn mules. And he will speak the language that a stubborn mule can understand, even if that is somewhat scary. Okay, We may come to God because we're afraid, but once we've come to God, he'll tell us there's no reason to be afraid. Okay, So I think that's why the fearful language is sometimes in there because some people only respond to a fearful message. But if we keep coming closer and closer and closer to God, remember there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. All right, now just the overview of the book of Revelation. There are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. Very interesting parenthetical sections in here. A whole description of the great controversy both in heaven and as it's played out on the earth. We have the three angels' message here, right in the heart of Revelation, that we'll talk about the seven bowls of God's wrath, the rider on the white horse, the thousand years, 
final judgment and lake of fire, and then finally the new heaven and new earth. All right, where do we begin? Well, I just want to make, since obviously we can't uh, go through here in detail um, all of these things, it would be a lot of fun to do, but I want to give you just a, I think maybe more importantly, a how to approach Revelation. The whole book of Revelation has sanctuary language and symbolism from beginning to end. And the sanctuary runs through not only the Old Testament, but Paul, John talk so much about it. We have to have an opinion about the purpose of that sanctuary service, about the blood of Jesus, about how all of this works, and we have to apply that meaning now to Revelation. We read about seven lighted torches around the throne, four living creatures covered with eyes in Revelation. All right, well, how do we understand this? We have to read Ezekiel. Remember the wheels within the wheels, and we get the same description there in Ezekiel. Okay, so we need to come with that understanding. We read about two olive trees, and that should bring us back to the book of Zechariah, where we read about these two olive trees. We read about locusts in Revelation. Well, now we have to read the book of Joel and try to understand about those locusts in Joel. And we read in Isaiah that the tail is the prophets whose teachings are lies. Now, that's very interesting. I think uh, we need to incorporate that. That gives us a clue, perhaps, about what these locusts are doing. We read about a description of Babylon in Revelation. Well, where do we read about Babylon? The whole book of Jeremiah, much in Isaiah. It's Old Testament. And we read about the huge dragon who has thrown out that ancient serpent named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. And we've talked about why at the tree, when that snake was there, how it is uh, Satan all the way through the Old Testament is uh, very much, yeah, he's there, but he's king of Tyre, king of Babylon. Um, it's very much veiled in the Old Testament. God exposed him in the New Testament and defeated him because he didn't want those people in the Old Testament to worship this powerful deity. But now it's very clear. Who was that ancient serpent at the tree? Name the devil. We're still not sure. Satan that deceived the whole world. So it becomes very clear, and it's now at this point in Revelation that we get detailed descriptions about what happened with this war up in heaven. And then we come to the eternal message of good news, the third angel's message. And we don't read this independently of the rest of the Bible. The good news, as we could show from just dozens of examples, Old and New Testament, the good news is that God is just like Jesus in character. Good news is about God. We take that definition now, and we read through the third angel's message, and now that is very insightful about what it is that we should be preaching. We come to a description of hailstones. Again, let's look through the Old Testament. Isaiah 28 is an incredible chapter that talks about very end-time events. God's strange act is described right here in Isaiah 28, and we read, Hailstorms will sweep away all the lies you depend on. Each new message from God will bring new terror. Okay, I'm not trying to go through a detail of every account, but my point is the Bible is the alphabet that helps us to explain this last book of the Bible. We read about merchants in the book of Revelation. No one could buy or sell without this mark. That is the beast's name or the number that stands for the name. Okay, what does that mean? And I thought as a child, or perhaps was told, uh, ATM cards won't work at some point. We can't buy or sell. Well, uh, let's, let's just 
think about what does the Bible describe here with these merchants? Well, we go back and read Ezekiel 28, which is an incredible chapter that describes Satan, who lived in God's very presence among the stones of fire. And then we read about what he did. In much buying and selling, you turned violent. You sinned. I threw you disgraced off the mountain of God. I threw you out. You, the anointed angel, cherub, no more strolling among the gems of fire for you. Okay, colorful description in the Message Bible, but read it in any version. Okay, he began buying and selling. What did Satan actually do? Remember, this was not a war where lightning bolts were being thrown back and forth, no tanks, it wasn't that kind of a battle. Uh, this was a war that was ultimately one of lies and deception. He was buying and selling a false picture of who God is. Okay, we want to apply that now. What, what does this mean going on here? Well, we read on about these merchants in Revelation 18. The merchants of the earth also cry and mourn for her because no one buys their goods any longer. I would take this to be a very positive thing. No one's buying the lies anymore. Okay, but we're not going to come to that conclusion, I think, unless we've perhaps uh, read about these merchants throughout the entire Bible. And, of course, fire. Revelation is a book full of symbols. And I've said we've used the whole Bible to understand the symbolic language. Now, but this is one, this is not a symbol, right? Well, we read Jesus' words, I came to set the earth on fire and how I wish it were already kindled. Okay, well, did Jesus say, I can hardly wait to burn this place up? Okay, what did Jesus mean? Well, let's just read through here. This is Revelation 19. And I want to read through this whole passage of Jesus coming back. And let's determine what is an actual, literal reality and what is a symbol. Okay, I saw heaven standing open and there was a white horse and its rider named Faithful and True. With integrity he judges and wages war. His eyes are flames of fire. Okay, now this is Jesus. Uh, how much of this, have you seen a picture of the second coming with Jesus coming back on a white horse? I guess actually I have, but that's not usually the common way that we think about it. Does he actually have flames of fire in his eyes? What's the meaning? Well, on his head are many crowns. Have you seen a picture with Jesus coming back with many crowns on his head? Well, this is a significant meaning. He has a name written on him, but only he knows what it is. And you read on in the first few chapters of Revelation, we get a name that only we know what it is. Okay, again, a very significant meaning to this. He wears clothes dipped in blood. Will Jesus come back with clothes dipped in blood? And we look up in the clouds, that's what we'll see. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven wearing pure white linen follow him on white horses. Is this what you expect in the clouds? Everyone comes back on a white horse. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth to defeat the nations. Will he actually come back with a sword out of his mouth? Or does this have a very significant meaning? He will rule them with an iron scepter and tread the winepress of the fierce anger of God Almighty. Okay, we apply our understanding of God's wrath, his anger, all the way through the Bible, and now we understand perhaps what this means. On his clothes and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, a significant meaning. Now, I saw an angel standing in or on the sun. He cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying overhead. Now, will there actually be at this point an angel physically standing on the sun? 
No, this is a very, very significant message that's given. And it calls out to the birds flying overhead, come, gather for the great banquet of God, eat the flesh of kings, generals, warriors, horses, and their riders, and all free people and slaves, both important or insignificant people. Now, will, will there actually be birds coming to eat the flesh of people that die at the second coming? Well, this brings us back to Ezekiel, where we get this description of the birds coming to eat the flesh. It has meaning. Okay, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Okay, so imagine all the jet fighters and tanks mobilizing out to fight off here the coming of Jesus. The beast and the false prophet who had done miracles for the beast were captured. By these miracles, the false prophet had deceived those who had the brand of the beast and worshipped its statue. Okay, there's meaning. We're not worshipping a relic. There's a meaning to that statue. Both of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, as many of you have probably grown up, what is the false prophet and the beast? Isn't this a false religious political system that tries to enforce things? How do you throw a system into a lake of fire? Well, the rider on the horse killed the rest with the sword that came out of his mouth. Again, is that an actual physical reality? And then all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh of those who'd been killed. Okay, so they're burned up in a lake of fire and then the birds come and eat. You know, I mean, again, this is all very, very potent with meaning. But what is it that we usually pick out of here and say, okay, they may all be symbolic, but there's one thing that is real and that is the fire. God does burn them up. That's, that one thing is very clear. Well, for those of you who haven't been here in the past, and I don't want to spend the whole time now going through the fire again, but we talked about this in detail with the book of Joel and also in uh, James also. Our God himself is a consuming fire, okay, which did not consume the bush when Moses talked to God. And when Moses came out of God's presence, he reflected in his face the bright glory <laughs> Of God, and that wasn't second-degree burns. That was a brightness, uh, glory of God. So we need to understand the fire, all the way through. And interesting here about the sea of glass. Then I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Have you seen a sea that's mixed with fire? And I also saw those who had won the victory over the beast and its image, and over the one whose name is represented by a number. They were standing by the sea of glass, holding harps that God had given them. Fire is always described as emanating from God's very presence. And again, symbols all the way through. Holding harps. Now, do any of you play the piano or violin or something? Okay, too bad. In heaven, you get a harp. Okay, that's it. No. Okay, again, there's a meaning to this. It's not one instrument only that we are allowed to have in heaven. Okay, what I want to talk about maybe as a way of going through uh, Revelation would be to describe the two groups of people. And not only the people, but perhaps the God that these two groups of people believe in. And you know, they're described many ways. Wheat and tares, sheep and goats, those who have God's seal or the mark of the beast in Revelation, those that are on the right hand or the left hand, the bride and the prostitute, the saved and the lost, could make a longer list of the, the two groups. What can we say about these two groups? Well, we read about the church of Laodicea. I know what you have done. I know that you are neither hot, no, neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, 
I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And I found it interesting here. This is the Greek word for this. Does that remind you of anything? Emeio? What does that sound like? An emetic, right? Okay, the people that are being described here literally make God sick to his stomach, like throwing up. All right, now, what would that mean? Of course, uh, you know, God loves his Laodicean church, okay, so he loves the people, but what they are doing makes him sick to his stomach. Now, just maybe for an example, let's say we turn on the TV and we read the story or listen to the story about a drunk driver who killed a girl and her family, and we wonder, and some ask in anger, where was God when this happened? And I think, if, let's just go back in time. Let's imagine that drunk man who killed that family, and we go back to when he was a boy, and perhaps he had around him only people who were uh, not bringing him any good message about God, not treating him in a way that God would treat him. And so God tries everything, tries to mobilize people around that boy to reach him with a good message of kindness. But it doesn't work. No one is there. No one responds, really, that uh, even the, the churchgoers who are around, they're just not listening. They're not able to reach out to this boy. So he grows up, and God watches, again, pulling out all the stops, doing everything he possibly can for this man. But slowly he goes into depression, becomes an adult, and begins to drink alcohol. Okay, how should God intervene in this man's life? He does not uh, manipulate, intimidate, or coerce people into the truth. No, he tries to use us to reach people around the world. And so God does not, for example, or would it be fair for him to pull all the alcohol off the shelves or for this man? Or perhaps as he begins to drink more, should God take away his freedom to drive? Does he work that way? Or if he's going to allow him to drive, would he allow him to get in an accident? Should God prevent him from having an accident? Or if he gives them the freedom to get in an accident, should he make sure no one gets hurt? Or should he at least make sure if he's going to get in an accident that only bad people are hurt in the accident? No, God does not manipulate and control the earth in this way. What he does is he tries to use you and I as people to go out and to represent God, to try to, re try to reach people like this man. And this is why, I mean, just imagine the rapes and murders and the things that go on in this world on a daily basis. And so God looks at his church, his people, who go to church every week, are reasonably good people, but doing very little in the world. And so it makes him sick to his stomach. We read on. You say, I am rich and well off. I have all I need. And this is not speaking of physical wealth. This is speaking of a feeling that spiritually things are good. I'm in good shape. But you do not know how miserable and pitiful you are. You are poor, naked, and blind. I advise you then to buy gold from me, pure gold, in order to be rich. And we read about Paul who was in prison and beaten so many times and shipwrecked and so on. And he would say, we seem to have nothing, yet we really possess everything. Okay, this is the true wealth. And we read on, buy also white clothing to dress yourself and cover up your shameful nakedness. It's a Christ-like character. Buy also some ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. What is it we want to see? We want to see God as he really is. Okay, and so I just imagine here that if uh, the impact of one person who 
is really settled into the kind of person that God is. And that one person who would really say, okay, I am, I'm wanting to do something about it in the world, um, can, can just be monumentous. I mean, I think when, when a person, even feeling completely inadequate, I can't speak, I still struggle with selfishness, I hate my enemy, but yet, God, I admire who you are, and I'd like to do something about it. I mean, I think that kind of a prayer gets God up off his chair and excitement and the angels are high-fiving all around heaven or however it works, you know. But uh, with excitement, and that person will be put to work because God is looking for people. Uh, this is a battle that we're in throughout the whole world, a political campaign, really, truth about God or a false message about God. And God has very few people that are really speaking the truth about what he's like. Well, what, so again, we're talking about the two groups. One group is just sitting back, self-satisfied, think they're in pretty good shape. Now, what kind of a God do they believe in? Well, listen to this. It used the vast authority of the first beast in its presence. And we're just jumping in the middle, but we're looking at what kind of a God these people may be, maybe believe in. It forced the earth and all who live on it to worship the first beast whose wound had healed. This second beast performed great miracles. It made fire come down out of heaven to earth in the sight of everyone. And it deceived all the people living on earth by means of the miracles which it was allowed to perform in the presence of the first beast. The beast told them to build an image in honor of the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And we don't have time to go through all the meaning of the symbols here, but what is being described are people who are forced into worship or people who believe in a God who forces worship. That is so contrary to the way God is. But yet some people have absolutely no problem being commanded down on your knees. Okay, but God never works that way. And also these people would appear to be very susceptible to miracles, signs, and wonders as the best evidence. Okay, we've never seen great miracles. All of a sudden if we see a great miracle, but that's so impressive, that must be from God. Okay, no, the highest evidence is someone that acts in character like God, not the signs and the miracles. And in, again, in Revelation 18, your merchants were the most powerful in all the world, and with your magic, you deceived all the people of the world. Apparently, there will be some miraculous things going on. That is not the best evidence, though. And I wanted to just tie it with this verse in 2 Thessalonians. The wicked one will come with the power of Satan and perform all kinds of false miracles and wonders and use every kind of wicked deceit on those who will perish. They will perish because they did not welcome and love the truth so as to be saved. What truth? Ultimately, all truth. The truth that sets us free is the truth about the kind of person God is. That we have to be settled in on. And so God sends the power of error to work in them so that they believe what is false. And how many times is God described as doing something that he allows to happen? That is such a key understanding. God is described here as doing something, closing eyes and ears, when rather he allows it to happen. Now, what are the people who believe in God, who are on his side? How do they think God works? They think he works this way. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come into their house and eat with them, and they will eat with me. Does this sound like a God who uses force and coercion and down-on-your-knees techniques? No, God knocks gently, okay? And this is the kind of God that we should be waiting for. Um, let me just read this very quickly. I'm using a few more Seventh-day Adventist uh, quotes here just because 
Um, you know, this has been a, a major, Daniel and Revelation, all these seminars and so on, but I thought this tied in nicely with this description here of miracles. Are we looking for miracles? And um, just listen to the description here, 1904. The way in which Christ worked was to preach the word and to relieve suffering by miraculous works of healing. But I'm instructed that we cannot now work in this way, for Satan will exercise his power by working miracles. God's servants today could not work by means of miracles because spurious works of healing claiming to be divine will be wrought. Have you ever seen that on TV? For this reason, the Lord has marked out a way in which his people are to carry forward a work of physical healing combined with the teaching of the word. Now that kind of sounds like what a doctor does, doesn't it? Physical healing combined with the teaching of the word. The truth must be proclaimed in the highways and the byways, and thus work is to be done by sensible, rational methods. We are to keep as far from the theatrical and the extraordinary as Christ kept in his work. And I, I like that, because even when Christ did a spectacular miracle, um, what did he do? Be quiet. Don't tell anyone. And he slipped away. And so even when he would, you know, what do you see now? If there's a miracle at, at one of these things you might watch on TV, boy, it's trumpeted up and, you know, all of that. No, Jesus, I'm not saying there won't be any miracles for God's side in the end, but it's done in a different way than the, uh, the spectacular and the theatrical. Okay, now let's contrast those people with people perhaps who are on God's side. The dragon was furious with the woman and went off to fight against the rest of her descendants. What do we describe about these people? All those who obey God's commandments? Does that mean they keep the Ten Commandments? Well, yes, but what does ultimately all law point to? All law points to love God and to love neighbor. So I would say ultimately this is describing a people who love others and are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus, faithful to the pillar that God is just like Jesus in character. And it's repeated so many times. I am a servant together with you and with other believers, all those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. We believe God is just like Jesus. We're settled on that. Worship God for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets all the way through the Bible. That has been the message God has been trying to get through about what he's like in character, just like Jesus. I also saw the souls of those who had been executed because they had proclaimed the truth that Jesus revealed and the word of God. Now, I want to talk a little bit. We're still talking about the two groups, and the two groups in Revelation are described as either having the seal of God or the mark of the beast. What is the seal of God? What is the mark of the beast? And so the angel said, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we mark the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. What is that seal? Well, um, who does the sealing? And we read in Revelation that it's the Holy Spirit. And you also became God's people when you heard the true message, the good news that brought you salvation. You believed in Christ and God put his stamp of ownership on you. And most of your versions read seal stamp of ownership, seal on you by giving you the Holy Spirit he had promised. Okay, so what we want to understand then in the sealing is what's the function of the Holy Spirit? I like the Message Bible here. Signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and again in uh, Ephesians, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So when we talk about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is involved in this sealing 
process. Well, Jesus in the upper room, we've been through these, but it's so important. This was just before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would come. He made it very clear, this is the function of the Holy Spirit. The Helper will come, the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. If there is to be a latter rain outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this will be at its heart, a revelation of the truth about God, that he's powerful, that he's bright. No, a revelation of what God is like in character. And he wanted to make sure they didn't miss the point. When the Spirit comes, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God, he'll lead you into all the truth. Truth about what? Truth about what God is like in character. I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. This is in the upper room. They're just about to get the Holy Spirit, and he's just telling them again and again and again, this is what the Holy Spirit's going to bring to you. The world cannot receive him because it cannot see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and is in you. And finally, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and make you remember all I have told you. Okay, which would again be to settle us in to this truth about God. And again, in case, well, an interesting passage here on the ceiling. It is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. Okay? I agree with this description here of the ceiling. It is to be settled into the truth about what God is like. Now, another description of these people who are settled into the truth. They won the victory over him because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. This is Logos, just like in John 1. They didn't love their life so much that they refused to give it up. This is very significant. These people in the end time, they don't love their life so much that they refuse to give it up. This is the ultimate, right? Jesus came, no greater love has a man than to lay down his life for a friend. And apparently God will have a people in the end who are the same way, okay? They are willing to lay down their life. That's just like Paul would say that about the Jews, just like Moses would say, you know, strike my name from the books if you're going to destroy these people. That's the ultimate demonstration of other-centered love. Whereas we read about these people, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because they had proclaimed God's word and had been faithful in their witnessing. See, there are two groups of people. There are groups that are um, selfishly killing others to survive, and there are groups of people who are laying down their life. This is the two groups, other-centered or self-centered. Now, I want to just conclude here because it's I think a very important message, which is the three angels' message. Um, many of you have heard about this, and I have to say I never really understood what all this was about until uh, fairly recently. Why is this significant, the three angels' message? Let's read the first angel, and all three angels here go together. But then I saw another angel flying high in the air with an eternal message of good news to announce to the peoples of the earth, to every race, tribe, language, and nation, he said in a loud voice, honor God and praise his greatness, for the time has come for him to judge all people. Worship him who made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of water. So notice, what is the message about? It's an eternal message of good news. And since we've been so redundant through the New Testament, what is the good news? And as we could show from so many examples, the good news 
is not about you and I. It's not even about our salvation. The good news is about the kind of person that God is. So the message is a good news message about God. Now, but what I want to link with this is that the good news always goes with judgment. Good news is always associated with judgment. Okay, how do those two work together? Well, first, just to make the point that if we're looking for, you know, we look for maybe earthquakes or disasters or things like that as evidence that the end is near. And I think the best evidence that the end is near is really when we see God's side beginning to get the message out. When we begin to see the good news about God really being preached and going throughout the world. Jesus would say, and this good news about the kingdom, really about the king of the kingdom, or about the way he runs his kingdom, this good news will be preached through all the world for a witness to all people, and then the end will come. That's what we should be looking for if we're looking in the world to see how close the end is. And um, I'm going to leave this quote in here, but for time, I'm going to skip over this because I wanted to just um, go forward here to Daniel. So much parallels with Revelation. But if we want a timeline of things, read Daniel 11. It's the most incredible description of events all the way from Christ to our present time. And it concludes with this. Then news that comes from the east and the north will frighten him. And this is the king of the north, king of Syria, which um, I am convinced represents Satan here in the end. Will frighten him, and he will fight furiously, killing many people. He will even set up his huge royal tents between the sea and the mountain on which the temple stands, but he will die with no one there to help him. And I can only think of one bit of news that would scare Satan in the slightest, and that would be the good news. So I think this is describing the good news coming. And notice, when the good news comes, there's an incredible splitting effect. Okay, there are some people that go to Mount Zion where the temple stands, and there are some people who are on the sea with everyone else. And Daniel concludes, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase sometimes interpreted as, yes, boy, the internet, boy, lots of knowledge has increased. But that's not the subject here. Knowledge shall increase about God, the good news. That knowledge will increase. And I like the Amplified Bible. Knowledge shall increase and become great. And knowledge about God will be at an all-time high, at least among some people, before the end. Okay, so we come back here to this message. It's a message about God. It's a message of good news. Why do we associate that with judgment? And I'm going to go through these very quickly here, but I just I want to build a convincing case, if I can, about why the good news goes with judgment. Jesus said, nor does the Father himself judge anyone. He's given the Son the full right to judge. And he's given the Son the right to judge because he's the Son of Man. And we're tempted to say, whew, I'm glad the Father is not the judge because he would not be nearly as sympathetic as the Son. No, that's not the meaning. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They're equally sympathetic. It's not that we have a judge who's more sympathetic than another member of the Godhead. Well, how does Jesus judge? How does he judge those who are on his side? I'm telling you the truth. Those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me have eternal life. They will not be judged, but have already passed from death to life. Okay, that's good news. Now what about those who reject his message? How does the judgment work? If people hear my message and do not obey it, I will not judge them. 
even though we just read that he would judge them. I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Okay, who judges? The words I have spoken will be their judge when? On the last day. The words Jesus spoke will be the judge on the last day. Okay, now we have to think, what words of Jesus would we really say as these are the words? And then we have to go to his mission. His mission was to reveal the character of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do we respond to that message, those words? Okay, that is, would seem to be the judgment. Well, Jesus said, how does it work? I came to this world to judge. Okay, how does it work? So that the blind should see and those who see should become blind. Jesus comes to bring the good news about what he's like. And this will have a splitting effect. Some people will be one to God. They'll love it. They see their eyes are opened. Some people will not like it. They'll close their eyes. They'll be blind. The good news will cause people either to come to it and to God or to reject it. It has a splitting effect. And Paul would say, so according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. It's so redundant. The good news is how God will judge. The good news is a message. Do we respond to the message? And again, in 1 Peter, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin first among God's own children. And even if we Christians must be judged, what terrible fate awaits those who have never believed God's good news? There it is again. Do we respond to the good news? If we do, judgment is a wonderful and great thing. If we don't, then it's a terrible thing. And I'll just read the key passage here in 2 Thessalonians of what happens when Jesus comes back with his mighty angels in a blazing fire. He will take revenge on those who refuse to acknowledge God. We need the whole Bible to understand what that means. And on those who refuse to respond to the good news about our Lord Jesus. That is how it works. They will pay the penalty. What is the penalty? By being destroyed forever, by being separated from the Lord's presence and from his glorious power. Okay, and a last verse here on judgment. I mean, would you want a more clear statement in the Bible than this? Jesus' words to Nicodemus. This is how the judgment works. Oh, plain statement, right? This is how the judgment works. The light has come into the world. Jesus, the good news, has come into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deeds to be shown up but those who do what is true come to the light in order that the light may show that what they did was in obedience to God. So the good news, the light comes, and we either join the light in God's side or we walk away and into the darkness. And that this passage exactly, I think, parallels and describes what is going on in the three angels' message. Because what's the second angel's message? A second angel followed the first one, saying, She has fallen. Great Babylon has fallen. She's made all people drink her wine, the strong wine of her immoral lust. Isn't this just describing? The light came. The good news came. And there are some people who are repulsed by that message and the description. Babylon has fallen. All right, and now the hardest words in the Bible, the third angel's message, the last. Then a third angel followed them shouting, anyone who worships the beast and its statue or accepts his mark on the forehead 
Okay, we agree, these people agree with an entirely opposite picture of God, the mark. Or on the hand, they must drink the wine of God's anger. We know what that is. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath. Again, how do we understand God's wrath? He gives them up because they're settled into another picture of who he is. And they, now, what about this, though? They will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur. But the key thing is, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. See, the description here of the third angel's message is ultimately to bring everyone, where everyone will come, into the very presence of God. And for people who are completely out of harmony with God, coming into his presence is a terrifying thing. Look again, are the angels and the Lamb standing in the burning fire? No, people are confronted with God face to face. And there are two groups of people. In Isaiah 33, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? The consuming fire is God himself. Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? But good news, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right, and we have a description. Some are very comfortable in God's presence. Some are tortured by the presence of God, just like Adam and Eve. Um, after sin, remember, they're running for their lives from God, who is just coming for a walk in the garden. And in Psalm 68, as wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. They are happy and shout for joy. So our mission really is to come to the world. Yes, God is coming back, but let us tell you what God is like. And so that when we are confronted with God face to face, people are not trying to hide in the rocks to fall on them, but uh, that rejoice that the God is coming back, however it appears, that we'll remember that that God is just like Jesus in character. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, certainly the message about who you are as we take the Bible as a whole becomes very clear. And help each one of us to as we spend more time with you, as we develop a trusting friendship with you, that our picture of who you are, our relationship with you strengthens and grows, and that we join you and all of your friends in taking part in this great mission to reach the world about your great character of love. Amen.